I'm Eva Hertling. Welcome to The Brand is Female. This week, my guest is Vera Mylon Gervais, an author, speaker, and award-winning serial entrepreneur who is committed to helping women develop the confidence to show up and succeed in business. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Vera Mylon Gervais has successfully built a number of businesses throughout her career. She's currently co-founder and executive VP of Health Connect Inc., a company that manages medical information services as well as customer care and health education programs on behalf of companies in various industries. But Vera's latest project, her signature Words We Wear program, explores how labels shape who we are and who we can become. Through her mentorship services, Vera helps women let go of limiting beliefs and tap into their full potential. Her experience as an entrepreneur, writer, marketer, and strategic consultant have shaped her perspective on success and well-being. A birth defect resulted in four major surgeries before she was 18 and left her with a leg length difference, scoliosis, and osteoarthritis. Yet, Vera is an avid hiker, gardener, traveler, photographer, and an accomplished businesswoman. In my exchange with Vera, you'll hear her insights and words of wisdom, sure to inspire any woman in the workplace, especially entrepreneurs building new ventures from the ground up. Here's our conversation. Vera, it's such a pleasure having you on The Brennis Female today. Thank you for making time to speak with me. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I begin these conversations usually by going back to the, you know, origin story of uh, what made your career happen. So I want to ask you, growing up, what did you envision as a, a future career for yourself? And was it at all connected to what you're actually doing today? Well, it's interesting. I grew up, well, I, I wanted to be a writer when I was growing up. I grew up with a physical handicap. So I couldn't do a lot of the activities that most other kids could do. So for me, it was like reading. Reading is what I did. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice if my name was on one of those books? Um, and of course, my parents are like, that's not a very good way to make a living. You can't do something like that. So I kind of l- let that one go for a while. And I don't think I knew what I wanted to do until I got to high school. And I got introduced to Frank Lloyd Wright and... Um, and all of a sudden, this whole aspect of, of, of architecture, oh my God, the, the combining of, of beauty and functionality. And I wanted to be an architect. So I thought that was what I'm going to do. And I actually, um, applied for, um, an engineering degree or an engineering scholarship at the university and won it. And I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to be an architectural engineer, except, um, they took it away from me because I was female. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And to be fair, there were qualifications attached to it that said that you had to demonstrate that you were going to utilize the degree. And what they said to me is, you're 18, you're engaged to be married, you're going to have kids, you're not going to use the education. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, this is the 60s, okay? And so I go home, late 60s, early early 70s, actually early 70s. Um, I go home and I tell my parents, this is what's, what they said. And my parents are like, well, you are 18. You are engaged to be married, which they weren't very happy about. You are going to have kids and you won't use it. So do something practical. So I ended up, my mom had been a bookkeeper before she got married and she did bookkeeping while we were growing up. So I ended up 
strong in math and physics. I went and registered for a commerce degree, and then I started articling for my CA. Um, but my parents were right about the marriage too. Um, it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to hear that. (laughs) Well, actually it worked out for the best. So it it didn't work out. And, and so I was 24 and I'm like, okay, I didn't like my marriage. I didn't like my career on, I just did something totally impulsive, which I guess you can do when you're in that emotional state. And I, I quit my job. I quit university. I quit articling. I walked away from everything. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try to be a writer again. And I went back to your first passion. Yeah, back to my first passion. And I went back to school and I studied communication arts um, at SAIT, Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, which is like a little bit like Ryerson. Right. And um, I I published my first article before I left school. I won awards for my photography and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a writer. Except my parents were right again. I couldn't make a living as a writer. The job I got offered, the first job for a travel magazine, didn't even pay for my rent, let alone my car payment. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to so, be tough. Yeah, that was going to be really tough. So, so I ended up taking another job that was offered because the communication arts program also included advertising as a as one of the subjects. And I got offered a position with an advertising agency in Vancouver. I was living in Calgary at the time, and it paid more right. and it got me, it got me somewhere new. Mm-hmm. I'd grown, I'd born and raised in Calgary. So it got me somewhere new. And you know what? It was the best thing I ever did because I got exposed to things that I didn't know existed. Like, like not only just color and design and fonts, but like sales and persuasion and managing clients mm-hmm. and managing people and all of these things that opened my world up in a way that I didn't know was possible. And so I ended up through that doing mostly like account management, but mm-hmm. some writing as well. And then that was, that was perfect because that served us really, really well when my husband and I actually got onto our entrepreneurial journey. Right. And to be the other thing that advertising brought me, I was working at the, at, uh, well, at, well, at the time it was the largest medical advertising agency in Canada. And so all that, all this exposure that I had when I was working in the advertising agency was so useful. It was the foundation of what happened when my husband and I started our entrepreneurial journey. And that was, well, realistically, I have to credit the advertising with that too, because I met my husband when I was working at an ad agency. I was director of client services for the largest medical advertising agency in Canada at the time. And he was working as a medical publisher. So he would call on me and we got to connect with one another. And ultimately we got together. Um, and we both came from the same industry. So it, we knew one another quite well. And then, um, it was interesting because we talked about, should we start a business? Should we not start a business? Cause we kept saying, we're the people making other people rich. Like what happens yeah. if we do ourselves? Right. <laughs> and, and what, what decade are we in at this point? We're in the, yeah, good point. Cause I jump a lot. This would be, um, the early nineties. Okay. It was, um, yeah. ni- 1991, actually. Um, my husband and I, we had a two year old. We had just built a new home and, um, we, we thought, no, we, you know, we got these big bills. We got this kid. The stability of a paycheck is really good. We should yeah. hang on. Mm-hmm. And then in the beginning of February, we both ended up without work. Ah. So the company I was working with went into receivership because of something a sister company did. The company he was working in lost a big contract. And so they couldn't even pay him back 
what he had invested as a partner, mm. let alone as a salary. So wow. with, with this massive debt, we're kind of looking at each other and going, we got to do something. Yeah. So we brainstormed for the weekend. We came up with a name. We came up with a positioning. We printed some business cards and we <laughs> went to the industry event and we said, here we are. Yeah. Um, company name is 8020 Communications. Um, our slogan was brains for rent. Okay. Uh, okay. Be- because we were going to do project management. Yeah. Because back then you didn't have all these people that were consulting and doing project management or any type of work like that. It was also kind of pre, you know, internet golden era. We we weren't using technology the way we are today, right? Not at all. And I mean, everything was face to face or, or, you know, letters. We we were still doing letters and faxes and fax and telephone. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting because we ended up out of that meeting, ending up with three clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll never forget because when we wrote our first business plan, one of the things we said, our first clients all started with an S. And so our business plan, my husband has this intriguing sense of humor. Our business plan was to grow the business by getting out of the S's. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny, actually. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of part of it. And I think for us, that entry into journal, we were forced into it in many ways, but it was something we really wanted to yeah, do. Right. Yeah. Cause you had thought, you had thought about starting a business earlier and then the circumstances just brought you there. It brought us to it. Yeah. And what worked for us is because we both knew the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the people that hired us knew us and trusted us right? because they had worked with us previously. Right. And we had, we had a very complimentary skill set. So mine was advertising and marketing and writing and Marcel was sales and training, um, publishing. So we came from different backgrounds, but into the same industry. And gotcha. he's a pharmacologist by training. Um, I'm big on math and physics or was uh, probably still am. Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, one of the things I enjoyed most about doing was taking the complexity of the industry because we worked with the pharmaceutical industry, taking the complexity of that industry and simplifying it so that we could reach patients. Right. And that was that was a really thrilling thing to do. So you built, you know, what became a, a highly successful business from there. What were the few years like and what kind of obstacles? Because you had just made a big shift going from, you know, working for an established organization. Now you're at the helm of your own business, which means, you know, business development, delivering yep. the client work, finding the new clients, etc. So what kind of big challenges did you overcome the, the first few years? Well, the first one came about three weeks in when we discovered I was pregnant. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Good timing. Wasn't, wasn't exactly planned. And, and it wasn't an easy pregnancy. My first pregnancy had been so easy, but the second one, I was sick all the time. And you're trying to build a business, trying not to run to the bathroom when you're in the middle of a phone call. <laughs> ideally. Um, <laughs> ideally. And, and just sort of figure out what are we going to do? Because back then, I mean, a, as an entrepreneur, you're not entitled to maternity. Plus, in the 90s, if you did get it, it was three months. Right. So, you know, yeah, there was start, no... we a long way on that front. Yeah, a long way. And so we had this, this, this business, this baby business, and this baby on the way, and this baby here. A lot of babies. Um, oh, yeah, it was a lot of babies, and it was a lot of shuffling. And, and we, we fortunately, are, we set up the business in the lower level of our home. So we had the baby monitor. When the baby was born, we had a baby monitor downstairs and a playpen and a jumper and all that kind of stuff. And the baby was upstairs. 
And oh, some of the funniest things that happen though, because like my husband has a very slow heartbeat. And so we put the baby in a snuggly on his chest and she'd sleep forever. (laughs) Otherwise, she only slept for two hours and she wanted to eat. She was just a very, very fussy baby. Right. And, um, and so I would have the baby in a snuggly and she'd be gurgling and making noise. And I'd trying to shush her so clients wouldn't know that I had a baby. Right. 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 And my husband's got this baby sleeping away (laughs) on him and he's trying to tickle her toes and wake her up so he could actually tell people he had a baby on her. Yeah. It's so funny how there's a double standard there. (laughs) Complete double standard. So it came a a question of juggling how we, how we worked with the baby. Mm -hmm. And, but, but we found some solutions. We found some really unique solutions. I remember getting a call when um, my daughter was literally three weeks old and they said, can you come and present to the U.S. team the brand plan that you wrote? Because I'd done a maternity coverage and written a brand plan for a woman. Okay. And and they didn't know the details. And I said, uh, not going to work. My baby's feeding every two hours. By the time I drive out there and come back, she's already like beyond consolable. Right. And because one of the product managers we worked with there, one of the brand managers was a mother as well. She said, just bring her. Marcel wow. and I, well, Marcel and I both work at the same company. Bring her. Marcel and I will have our meeting with the baby. We'll call you when it comes time to feed her. Right. So I go into this meeting and I make my presentation. I'm sitting there. I'm going, you better knock on the door pretty soon because my milk is coming and my blouse is going to get really wet pretty soon. <laughs> and that was still, we're still in the 90s, which that is... 1991. So like that was way yeah, ahead. Because now we're still shocked when women bring their yeah. babies into, you know, uh, at the, I'm thinking of that happened in parliament, that happened at the yeah. UN. We're so surprised when a woman shows up with her baby at work, essentially. Yeah. And it was so cool because we, I walked in, I left, I walked into where my husband and Laura were having this meeting and Laura's rocking Danae on, on her hip and Marcel's taking notes and they're sitting there. This was beautiful. They're sitting there doing a multi-million dollar brand launch. And I sit down, put the baby on the boob, contribute a little bit, move her to the other one. And they said, okay, we'll burp her and change her. You go back to your meeting. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think for a lot of women, uh, being an entrepreneur kind of offers more flexibility when they're a mom right and when when the the baby is still is still young it, it we can kind of build you know our, our work around taking care of our child at the same time uh which is really fascinating and not always possible in an organization but it's amazing that this client was open to to this concept and it was interesting because we were surprised at how many clients were mm-hmm. i mean and part mm-hmm. of it what that made it possible was that we were both in the same business, right? And so we could go to meetings together and we could change off with the baby so that if she was fussy, whoever was the most adaptable could do it. So that would do it. But I think, I think the lesson I learned then was if you don't set the boundaries and say, my family comes first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that's hard for a woman because they're saying that means my career doesn't come first. Yeah. Right. But we really, we really do need to put them to where, to, to, know, to know what our balances are. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you asked me about challenges. The, the other challenge we, we faced, a second challenge we faced was when the kids were four and seven. Marcel had come out to Atlantic Canada, which is where I'm living right now in Moncton, New Brunswick. 
and said, what would you think about moving out to New Brunswick? And I'm going, uh, wrong way at the border, dear. Let's go back. Cause we were living in Toronto at the time. Right. Let's go back to the mountains. And he's, um, no, he said he, he's fr- Francophone by descent. Right. But grew up armed forces. So he was educated in English and he wanted the kids to be bilingual. Okay. So that was a goal we had when we, when we set our business plan is that we would always place family interests as high as any business interest. Mm, good for so you. So we said, okay. I said, I'm not sure about this. He says, okay, let's put the house on the market. We were living in a rural subdivision. Things were taking a long time to sell. He says, we'll have a year to figure it out. I'm going, okay, we'll do that. The house sold before the sign went up. <laughs> Again, so, good timing. <laughs> good timing. So you talk about the early. So this was 1995. Everything we did was by fax right. or phone. Yeah. There was no email, right? Yeah. Or yeah. very limited if there was. Yeah. COVID now has made remote work possible. Yeah. But back then. It was not. Back it then. It was not a thing. No. It didn't exist. Yeah. And so how do you justify to your clients that you're moving across the country? Right. Like nobody conceived of the part that we would be able to work from remote. Yeah. Yeah. But, and but Marcel said, when you need to do a face to face. Yeah. Meeting. So it, it worked out, but it was a challenge because you're, you're, you're changing the mindset of clients that yeah. say, you yeah. know, you've got to be there when I call. And Marcel says, you call me today. I'll hop on a plane. I'll be there tomorrow morning. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's funny because we now think of remote work as kind of an established, yeah. you know, reality, but it's fairly recent. Um, pre COVID, I mean, most, you know, now we, we talk about the, the nomad, uh, you know, workers and you can be in Costa Rica, you can be in Brazil, you can be anywhere and working with North America. But even before COVID, this was not the norm. And, you know, anybody that was working with clients or anybody that was working for an organization, everybody expected face-to-face time immediately. Yeah. So you were a pioneer for remote work, essentially. We were definitely a pioneer for remote work. But it's interesting that you bring up the pandemic and everything, because one of the things that we built our business on, if we come back to the business, was relationships. Um, we, I think that one, one, one of the things we're most proud of is that I would say 90% of our business came through referrals. So that says we did really good work. Exactly. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. With remote work. And with globalization, which I think globalization has been our biggest challenge, you don't have those relationships anymore. Yeah. We're dealing with procurement in three different countries and you've got people making decisions based on cost and how well you write an RFP as opposed to on what you actually deliver. Right, right. Yeah, we're losing a lot of that human interaction that makes a business relationship flourish. Right. And if you think about it from entrepreneurs that are building a business, I mean, now you're out there dealing with social media and the mass marketing of social media, the, the indistinguishability of each other, whereas relation, and, and, and I love it when I see people saying, we got to build relationships. We got to build relationships, but we used to build relationships. We lost that capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we can find a different way of doing it. I think it depends on the industry as well, but yes. I can see that there's this, desire to return to connection, right? And I think that's the theme that we're hearing a lot post-COVID as well, is we're we're all feeling that, that, you know, that lack of of human contact um, and we're finding new ways to interact with each other. But I see what you mean from a business standpoint, it's, it's relationships are not managed the same way. 
This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, puts guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. So business was, you know, baby came, you kind of, you moved, you relocated to uh, the Maritimes uh, and then business continued because you had, and it continued to grow because you had uh, very happy clients who shared, you know, the the word about your great work. Um, So what came next and what, well, actually I have another question first. So you started the business with your husband. Yes. I, you know, I've had women on the show before talking about their, their business partner also being their, their romantic partner. Um, how is it working with your husband and how do you make it work? You seem to have this amazing, uh, kind of complicity and, um, you know, you, you're, you're complementary to one another. Uh, but what's the success to working with your husband in a, in a business? I think one of the things that helped us a lot is that we had worked together as like clients and, and relate in a, in a working relationship and a professional relationship before we got together personally. Right. So I often say we learn to negotiate before we learn to fight. Um, which helped a lot <laughs> in terms of our marriage as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, I think a couple of things when people say, how can you work with your husband that way? And Marcel and I physically worked in the same physical office for 25 years, wow. like sometimes That's face impressive. to face. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I think a, um, we have huge respect for each other. Mm-hmm. So because we had met one another in a working situation and got to know one another in a situation and respect one another's skill sets too. That's the other thing. Right. So. When people say I could never work for my husband, I keep saying I could never work for my husband either. Mm. I have to work with my husband. Yeah. And yeah. he has to work with me. Right. There can't, I, I don't personally think like my husband took the title president because I wanted him to. He's more going than I am. So like that's okay. That's his role. But yeah. yeah, that's his role. And, and he's the sales guy. So that makes sense. The sales and marketing guy. And I'm more of the implementer. And, but for me, it was like, if we weren't equal, I don't think we could have carried on the way we did. That makes sense. Because we had this ability to say, okay, um, I'm going to disagree with you mm-hmm. and I'm going to disagree with you on this. And we would argue. And sometimes staff would go, oh my God, they're having a fight. We'll walk out. And we're going, no, 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 no. If two managers always agree, you don't need one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So we're entitled to disagree too. We're not going to take it home. We're not going to battle in front of you. We're going to disagree and we're going to come up with a better solution. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and disagreement when managed the right way can lead to a lot of creative outcomes, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's when you disrupt that status quo that you get the best ideas. Right. And so I think that had a lot to do with it. And then setting the boundaries on like, we don't have to make every decision together. Right. Right. And so for us, it was like, we did two things with decision-making. We did, what's the worst thing that can happen and can we live with it? Mm -hmm. And the second one was, who does it matter most to? So like, 
if we're talking about buying computers or stereos or cars, I don't care. Right. <laughs> if my feet reach the pedals and I can drive properly, I'm good. You know, <laughs> if my, if I can sit down on my laptop and I can write without worrying about the thing crashing, I'm good. Yeah. So he can make those decisions. If it comes to colors or, um, decor or creative aspects of the business or even themes, things like that, that's, that's my ballywick. Right. And so we just honor that. Yeah. We just don't. Yeah. It makes so, it so much easier. Well, and that's a very productive partnership because you're literally a complement to one another, but you yep. kind of bring out the, the strains in, in one yeah. another as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. Fast forward, tell me about where you took the business next. And I also want to talk about the next business you build eventually. <laughs> so one of the things we learned when we were going through business is that you really have to be flexible. Mm, so yeah. we started off in project management and then we got asked, um, can you, there's something called PAB in the industry where you have to go through reviews. And somebody said, well, you seem to get all your stuff through. My agency's having difficulty getting theirs through. Can you do it? So we went, Okay. Yep. That's a, that's one way to expand our business. And ultimately we ended up doing medical publishing. We ended up doing a satellite education network. Uh, we published the industry reference book. We did, um, patient education programs, client, physician education programs, clinical trials. In fact, we've, we kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with the term blue ocean, but when we launched the company as a project management, we were a blue ocean company. Right. Five years in, there were people out there competing with us doing project management because they'd seen it was possible. Mm. So that's when you start to become a red ocean. So we pivoted. Right. And I think part of our success, because we're 32 years into the business, part of our success is we pivoted about every five years. Oh, okay. not a com yeah, not a complete pivot, but we'd say, okay, um, patient education is now going to become a thing. So let's, let's keep going with what we're doing on the publishing side, but let's pivot into patient education. Very smart. And is that, some, is that something you had decided early on as part of your strategy? Like every five years, no. we'll kind of challenge ourselves. So it just, it happened organically. No, it was, it was one of those where, yeah, it happened organically. It was like, I, I do a lot of strategic consulting. And mm -hmm. so from a strategic point of view every year, and this is something a lot of, com a lot of young companies don't do is that strategic planning. Exactly. So we may not have made the decision to pivot every five years, yeah. but we did make the decision to sit down every year and do a SWOT analysis, strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats analysis. Wonderful. So Marcel and I would go away um, for a couple of days and you don't need a lot of technology. I mean, now we have technology, but back then I literally used to take sheets of white paper, tape them onto the wall with markers, and we would do our swats with these white pieces of paper on the wall. I think that's still one of the best ways to do it. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. you can you can replicate a whiteboard with yeah. you know, project management software, yeah. but sticking on, on the wall is still the best way. And, and so we would do that and we would say, oh, like this is becoming a threat. So before it becomes a weakness, what do we do? And the other thing that's really cool for me is that if something is a weakness, but it's not going to make a threat worse and yeah. it's not going to make an opportunity better, ignore it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That's good advice. Because we have this tendency to think it's a weakness. I got to deal with it. Yeah, but if yeah, my, yeah. if my weakness is that I don't know how to speak Greek, right? And we're going global. If I have no business coming from Greece, if I have no potential, it doesn't matter. Ignore it. 
Yeah. Ignore it. Focus on yeah. the weaknesses that will achieve something. Well, and I think something that gets hard for entrepreneurs, and I always find it interesting speaking to women entrepreneurs who, you know, have a partner and often it happens yeah. to be their husband, um, is kind of that, you know, exchange between two brains that, that work differently. And you can replicate that with a business partner who's not your life partner as well. Yeah. But I think for a lot of women entrepreneurs who feel very isolated in their position, you know, as the, yeah. as the head of the company, kind of looking at, at strategy, uh, in, in that way and, um, tr trying to fix everything all the time and trying to control everything all the time gets very difficult. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, as women, we're perfectionists and we think we have to do everything right. Yeah. So I want to get to your new business. Where, where did the idea, you know, come from and when did you feel you wanted to branch out in addition to your existing business and do something else? Well, it's interesting because I had a knee replacement five years ago and I knew I had to step outside of the business because it was going to be a, a serious surgery. And when I was at home and sitting there, I came back to this stuff that, well, A, I still wanted to be a writer, right? I mean, I've been doing all <laughs> that of this. First passion never that went first away. passion never went away. And so I started just kind of journaling and writing and doing sort of things. And then the trigger that really hit me, I grew up with this physical handicap and I'd always kind of lived in the background because of it, because you mm. get bullied and you get labeled. But when my kids started to be affected by being labeled, so my daughter was a very, very good gamer and she's, um, she loves heavy metal and she's got tattoos and people would say, Oh, poor you, like your daughter. And I'm going like, what? My daughter speaks four languages. She bought yeah. her home when she was 22. She's the wow. best product manager you're going to ever meet. And you're judging her based on your preconceptions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I started going back to dig into this research as a medical researcher. I got to go back to research, right? And I realized how dangerous labels were. Right. And then because I've done a lot of work in the brain, I'm going like, why? And mm -hmm. so I got into this whole concept. One of my gifts is I can take complex things and simplify them. So I thought, how do I simplify this whole concept of limiting beliefs that hold mm -hmm. us back? Because mm -hmm. my belief is, particularly for women, we're more capable than we are confident. Yeah. Absolutely. And that comes from a mindset. But mm -hmm. if you say you have to change your limiting beliefs, you have to change your mindset, that's work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we make it not work? And I came up right. with this concept that, that I call words we wear which is basically that word labels are like clothing labels. They affect mm. how we feel and how we show up. So I've got a keynote, I've got a workshop, and I've got a book that will be coming out this fall called Words We Wear. And I love it because all I have to do is say to a woman, what do you feel like, what do you wear when you want to be confident? Right. What right. do high heels do for you? What does a yeah. black dress do for you? What do yoga clothes do? And you yeah. know, right? You yeah. know the way those clothing make you feel. So let's mm -hmm. find the words that give you that. Mm -hmm. And it's so fun. Well, that's so interesting because words, as you say, are extremely powerful. And we also, we manifest things, you know, by the way we speak to ourselves and by the statements we make. Um, so you're, you're kind of unlocking that potential for women to create their own reality, their own, you know, positive reality. Um, 
have you seen a difference over time? And I mean, you, we started a conversation and you talked about that anecdote from the sixties where, you know, you got rejected from a, an educational opportunity, uh, because you were a woman and you've, I'm sure you've had clients even in, in your first business who, who were women over the years. So, uh, have you seen a change? Are women starting to be more confident? Because, you know, we still have a long way to go, but we have increased representation. You know, we're kind of hearing a little bit more about role models today. Are we seeing a shift? There is a shift. It's not, in my mind, fast enough, but I think right. there is a shift. I interviewed about 30 women for my book, and Partially, part, that was part of the question is a, you know, what gives you confidence and, and what, what allows you to do what you're doing. And what's really interesting is it really does come down to what they believe they can do and what they right. believe they deserve. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. That makes so sense. confidence comes back to whether or not we believe in ourselves mm-hmm. and we don't give ourselves permission to believe in ourselves. Right. And so I think where I see the changes coming is with women who have said, screw that. I'm ignoring traditional definitions of success, traditional definitions of what I should do as a woman or whatever, right? And then the women who've gone the traditional route and said, that didn't work and I'm not satisfied. Right. So where I see change coming, and it's across age groups, but it's a, it's a psychological thing. It says, I don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want balance. And I think if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that everybody wants balance. Right. And so if we can capture that sense now and embrace it as something we deserve, I think everybody's confidence level will go up. Everybody's yeah. sense of belonging will happen. Because if we stop measuring success from traditional terms of bank accounts and dollars and status, and we start measuring success in terms of of finding balance that makes us happy and gives us fulfillment, oh my God. Mm Self-realization. Yeah. Imagine how how wonderful the world would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a guest who said something very interesting on a, on a recent episode and she talked about emotional profit. So yeah. looking, not, not looking at financial, well, financial profits interest is important because you want to stay in business, but emotional profit should be, you know, yes. a, key, a KPI that we, that we measure, uh, because it's, it's, it's what, you know, keeps us passionate and interested and motivated. But I'd like that you bring up that, concept of deserving right realizing accepting you know knowing that we deserve good things that we deserve uh you know abundance we deserve to be successful which is very hard for women it is hard because we're brought up one of the ladies i interviewed said we were we were uh we were not taught to show up we were taught to shut up right yeah and that was such and she's only like in her late 20s so like 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 for me, I mean, it was the seventies that, that educational thing, but still I'm, there's decades between us. Right. And for her to say that she was brought up similar to the way I was brought up was like, Oh my God, that's heart wrenching. And so I think that as women, the other thing that I think that's made a difference is women who get into sports and to learn to compete, learn that it's okay not to be perfect, that it's a practice, like confidence is a practice. Success is a practice. I think that's really important because if we, if we think we have to be perfect and then we make a mistake, 
and this is me you know, over and over in my life, then you think, oh my God, I'm a failure. And then you yeah. stop trying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You stop trying. But yeah. if you don't believe you can do something, you don't believe you deserve something, you don't try. Exactly. And, it's, and then it's, you're not going to achieve, right? This brings up for me something else that I guess shared, you know, um, something like 80% of businesses will fail, you know, within yeah. the first three years. And then that number keeps, yeah. keeps growing. Um, but we often, as women entrepreneurs, we fail, we fail when we give up. Of course, yes. there's going to be obstacles. Of course, there's going to be hard things, but there's always a solution. But when we stop trying, then yeah. there's no way out. It's not going to yeah. continue. Yeah. And so that's, that's the biggest learning for me is like, if we believe we deserve it, we'll keep trying. Right. So I want to segue and that's perfect, you know, perfect transition. What would be, you you just shared a big one, but what would be your three uh, top pieces of advice for women entrepreneurs, somebody who's maybe starting a business, somebody who already has a business that's existing. uh, What do you want them to know? First of all, I think it comes right back to this. We got to believe in ourselves. We got to believe that we're here for a reason, that we have a purpose and it's okay to pursue that even if other people don't think so, right? The second one is advisors and mentors. If if we made one mistake with building our businesses, we relied so much on each other, we didn't reach outside. And I think one of the advantages of reaching outside is you get people who don't have that emotional attachment Yes. And they can open you up to options that you maybe didn't think of. It's still your decision. You still get to make the decision. And that's really important because one of the other things you have to do is come back to your gut, which is mm. back to believing in yourself. So if yeah. you disagree with an advisor or a mentor, maybe they're the wrong advisor or a mentor. Don't assume that they're all the right person for you. Right. So that's really important. And then the other thing, and this is really hard for so many women, let go. Yes. <laughs> Probably let, the hardest. <laughs> let go of perfectionism. Let yeah. go of controlling everything. Yes. Um, take your vacation. Yeah. Take your vacation <laughs> because then you come back refreshed and, and energetic and the ideas come. Otherwise, you're just drained. I mean, if we don't fill ourselves, we got nothing left to give. Exactly. Fill your own cup first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that uh, remarkable advice on on all three friends and how do you measure success today we've we you know talked about emotional profit you talked about um balance right uh but for you what does success look like for your business and for yourself i think i started thinking in terms of like from for the business that marcel and i have we had this conversation on our last annual planning that said 32 years in business, if we had to close the business tomorrow because of the pandemic or we sold it or whatever, we've been successful because our marriage has stayed together. It stayed very strong. Um, our kids are amazing, independent, intelligent individuals, like off doing great things while our daughter's working with us, but they're still doing great things. Um, we've traveled the world. We didn't wait to change to to do what we wanted to do. Marcel and I have been to 42 different countries. We have been to all seven continents with our kids. We didn't miss any of their major events, their titles. We we were coaches for them. We took them to swim meets and hockey tournaments and all that kind of stuff. So for us, success is that we found life 
while we were building a business. Amazing. We created a life that's been fulfilling. Yes, right. there's been ups and downs, but and, and, and it's funny because now I see everybody out there looking for that. So I guess we were trailblazers in that too, but yeah. that's, that's success for us. Right. And for my new business, for, for, for coming out with the book and everything, what I really want to do is to spread the word that that's what success is. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, just if I could reach, you know, a thousand women, a million women, 10 million women, because women are going to be the people who change the world. Sorry, men, but women are. Because we're the parents and we're the, we're the supporters. Um, I call women to I see. We're the, we're the one behind making, whether it's our spouses successful, our bosses successful, other women yeah. successful. We're the people who make it happen. Right. We're the leaders. And so if we, if I can reach women and, and get them to embrace that fact that they, they can be confident, they can believe in themselves. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I would be ecstatic. And I would add, I think women just, you know, by circumstances were agents of change, right? Yes. Because we've had to overcome adversity. We've yes. had to overcome bias, you know, just due to yeah. our, our gender. Um, so we are making that change happen, whether whether we want it or not. It's interesting that you say that because one of the other things that I note is like, I'm, I'm talking, I'm pitching corporations now with my workshop because it, it makes for a great team building uh, exercise. Mm -hmm. And I started to resist saying I wanted to talk to women in leadership. Huh. And I, I wasn't sure why. So I sat down with a girlfriend of mine who's a psychologist and I said, what am I, what am I resisting? I yeah. said, I want to say leadership in women instead of women in leadership. Huh. And she goes, very interesting. And she said, that makes sense. If it's leader, if it's women in leadership, the control is in leadership and huh. women are trying to find a role. Right. If I say leadership in women, women have the energetic advantage and control. Mm -hmm. And then we just empower our leadership. Right. And if you think about it, we're all leaders. We lead yeah. families. We lead scout troops. We lead fundraising. We lead caregiving for our parents and for others. We just don't call it leadership. We call it coordination yeah. and project yeah. management, but we're leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're also, you know, emotional intelligence is yes. kind of innate women. You know, we have a, an approach to leadership that's a lot more nurturing based on yes. empathy. And we've been yeah. taught that this is all bad, but now, you know, yeah. new studies on leadership prove that this is the leadership of the future. Yeah. So, yeah, I think women, women, I, I'm hoping the world opens up for us. I'm just... Yeah. I think, um, I think it's our time. I think so as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, on this note, this was absolutely wonderful. You've had great insights to share. I know our listeners are, are going to get a lot out of this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for thank sharing you. your wisdom with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico.
Yeah.